This is episode number 451 with Dan Schiebler, Staff Machine Learning Engineer at Twitter. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a Chief Data Scientist and best-selling author on Deep Learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, John Crone, and I am very grateful to be joined today by Dan Schiebler. Dan works full-time as a staff machine learning engineer at Twitter in New York, while he's simultaneously pursuing a PhD in machine learning from the University of Oxford. During this episode, Dan fills us in on how to get started on a PhD while working full-time, what it's like to actually juggle the two, and tips for succeeding if you ever chose to go down that route. What the mathematical field of category theory is and how it's relevant to machine learning. Proven strategies for labeling huge datasets, what revenue science is, what a staff software engineer really does, and finally, the software tools used at Twitter and the skills they look for when hiring. This episode will be of special interest to anyone who's considered pursuing a PhD, but might not want to give up their job. That said, much of the episode is broader than that, providing unique and fascinating insight into little-known fields such as category theory and revenue science that I think will appeal to anyone. And here and there, Dan provides technical guidance and practical software tools that will be beneficial to hands-on data professionals. Dan, welcome to the program. You were last year on episode 345 in March 2020. Has much changed since then in the world? What's your life been like? Uh, things have certainly changed quite a lot. Uh, my, I, I missed the office where I recorded the last episode. Nice. Um, well, you're still in New York, right? So you work at the Twitter New York office, um, but you're still based in New York. That's um, right. And if people That's are the free food. Oh, yeah, I bet. Do they do delivery or anything to make up for it? Probably not. Uh, I wish. No, <laughs> I, I've had to learn how to cook. Oh, maybe that is something that will become useful in the long run. Um, Perhaps. But yes, yeah, so you were on an episode right before the uh, lockdown started in New York. I remember it all too well. Um, and here we are a year later, probably couldn't have imagined that yeah. a year later we'd still be at home. Yep, yep. Constant suspension of disbelief. Nice. Well, I'm excited to have you back on the program. So Kirill absolutely loved having you for episode 345. So uh, you were a star guest, and that's why uh, Kirill recommended that you come back on. And uh, I was blown away when Kirill introduced me to you because we have, from my perspective, an uncanny number of parallels. So we both uh, studied neuroscience as undergrads, and I continued. Uh, so my master's and PhD are nominally in neuroscience, but actually I was focused on machine learning through my entire PhD, and that PhD was done at Oxford University, where you are currently 
yep. doing a machine learning focused PhD, just like I did. And Indeed. the final one is that we both have taught at the New York City Data Science Academy. So I'm going to go through those one by one. Um, but let's start off by talking about your neuroscience undergrad. Uh, so uh, tell us about it and how that led to a machine learning career. Totally. So, I mean, really, neuroscience was my, my first interest. I, I went to Brown undergrad. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to go to Brown in the first place is that they had a neuroscience major that um, uh, people paid a lot of attention to and, and seemed really exciting. Uh, I, I thought that the, there was nothing that could be more important in the world than studying how people worked. And really, the best way to understand how people worked is to look at the the science of how people work. Psychology was seemed a little bit too soft to me, and neuroscience was really the uh, the, the most technical details that you could get on, in terms of how our brains actually work. Um, I couldn't so that, agree more. I yeah. felt exactly the same way. Yeah, I mean, so that that was what that was what started me down the path of neuroscience, and I, I really had no. Uh, at the beginning, I had no strong attachment to coding or math or machine learning. I uh, don't. I don't think I heard the term machine learning once before my maybe my senior year of college, and I uh, didn't code in high school. I only learned how to code when doing starting to do data analysis for uh, my my undergrad, um, and then when we did uh, neuroscience research, and the. My my experience with starting off doing data science in or this, like sort of basic biological data analyses that wasn't really called data science at the time, but really was data science. Uh, in my my neuroscience undergrad is what got me excited about data science, about machine learning, about coding in the first place, writing MATLAB scripts. To uh, I was just going to ask, was it MATLAB? Yeah, of course, me too. of course. Yep, yeah. yep, yeah, yeah. I mean that that. It convinced me to take on a, a second major in computer science, actually, which I started oh, my, jun wow. my junior year of college. Uh, and so that was, that was a, it was a bit of a, it wasn't really a pivot because I continued doing neuroscience throughout my, my undergrad, but it, I added it on partway through. Right. And So did you get into a, so I guess in your junior year, you would be taking like first year computer science classes and you were like, Hey guys, check out these MATLAB scripts. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, a lot of the computer science classes, uh, you know, it's sort of very different mindsets to the, the kinds of things that happened in, in the neuroscience department, the sort of things that I needed to learn in order to do data analysis there. Uh, there, there was this class that was a MATLAB class that computer science students would usually TA, but not take. Uh, and it was it was offered to engineers as one of the it was like a scientific computing and MATLAB course, uh, and so I I, I TA'd that course because I knew MATLAB very well from my research, and then I was a computer science student. I TA'd it one year, and then I was the head TA another year. I got to make some of the projects for it, and grade the tests and such, which was nice. Oh, nice! Uh, and so that was that was a nice experience to sort of blend near the end of my undergraduate experience of the computer science and more MATLAB sides. Nice. So here's a question for you. What happened to MATLAB? I mean, I, I so through my PhD, I did I had one. So for the um, for the chapters of my thesis, which for people who haven't done a PhD, which is obviously most people, uh, yep. you tend to break up 
your research into a few chunks, which are chapters of your doctoral thesis. And so I think I had five different strands of research that became the five chapters, the five core chapters of my thesis. And one of those, I actually used MATLAB for it. Um, but the others were all R and Python, and I yeah. taught myself R and Python during the PhD. And it's interesting how much MATLAB was used in yeah. science, maybe still is taught to undergrads yeah. in science, but nobody uses it professionally. I don't think I know anyone. Yeah. So fun fact, actually, I, I did work at MathWorks. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, You're so the have, person to talk to. <laughs> I, have, I have a bit of a soft spot for MATLAB from that yeah. experience. Um, yeah, I, I, after I graduated college, I, I had sort of last minute pivot and I decided I did in fact want to pursue a, a software engineering career. And I knew MATLAB very well from having TA'd this course. So the going to MathWorks was, was a relatively easy, uh, easy path. Uh, and I mean, the, there, they were, when I was there, they were doing quite well. This was I mean, only about. I think that, I think they ago. are. It, it just yeah. shows that I'm. I, I don't know what it is about my experience professionally. But yeah. When I go to conferences, it seems like today, particularly so on the machine learning side, people are almost always using Python. Yeah. yeah. You. See, I mean, MATLAB is expensive. That, right. That's. That I think. I mean, I think that's one of the really big problems. It, it's. It's not an open source software, and really the and I, I this is this is something I didn't understand this before I worked at MathWorks, so that I kind of understood this is that like the MATLAB product is not really the programming language; it's the customer support that they they interface very tightly with NASA, with Boeing, with like these massive wow. companies with like basically all engineers who are employed there. Who then utilize MATLAB for modeling and for for the, the sort of uh, part of their their engineering jobs, and when they face various eccentricities of the language, they, they don't want to be chasing down the the sorts of issues that someone who might be more um, you know wants to spend all their time thinking about coding or thinking about building things in the programming language would want to think about. They they want to just have their things work properly, and so having the ability to talk to someone and have sent questions that will then get someone spends a lot of time looking through their questions, helping them through things as part of a MathWorks contract is very attractive deal. So it's, it's really a, uh, it's, it's a totally different model. I, I don't even consider it necessarily a direct competitor to, to Python and R. And, and of course this could very well have changed in the year since I've been there. I haven't worked at Math on MATLAB no, at all. I'm sure but, you're right. And, and I, and I do know people who work at MathWorks um, still today, and they're incredibly clever people, just like you. And so I no doubt MathWorks is still crushing it. It's, it's just interesting how I, they don't come up in conversation yeah. as much as I would have expected when I was using it all the time as an undergrad and even a bit in my PhD. Yeah. And another interesting thing, I mean, it follows directly from what you're saying. Another great thing about MATLAB is because it is a relatively contained ecosystem, it everything works exactly as it should. Yeah. And e everything is documented to the same high level uh, standard. Yeah. So you never run into, you know, you know, you talk about bumping up against eccentricities. I don't remember that ever happening in MATLAB in the same way that ends up happening if you're using an open source library where you run into versioning issues all the yeah. time. 
uh, you run into situations where there is no documentation all the time. Yep. And that's, that's just part of the open source life. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's a trade-off. There's, there's a lot of flexibility that open source gives you I mean, the ability to, there's just more code that you can access that other people have written and more, a, a larger community of people that you can like look at the things that they've been building. Um, and, but on, on the flip side, there's all these weird issues that you need to deal with is uh, environments that you need to handle that MATLAB will handle for you. Yeah. Takes a lot of trust. I'm sure this method works perfectly behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> you may already have heard of Data Science Go, which is the conference run in California by Super Data Science. And you may also have heard of Data Science Go Virtual, the online conference we run several times per year. In order to help the Super Data Science community stay connected throughout the year, from wherever you happen to be on this wacky giant rock called planet Earth, We've now started running these virtual events every single month. You can find them at datasciencego.com connect. They're absolutely free. You can sign up at any time. And then once a month, we run an event where you will get to hear from a speaker, engage in a panel discussion, or an industry expert Q&A session. And critically, there are also speed networking sessions where you can meet like-minded data scientists from around the globe. This is a great way to stay up to date with industry trends, hear the latest from amazing speakers, meet peers, exchange details, and stay in touch with the community. So once again, these events run monthly. You can sign up at datasciencego.com connect. I'd love to connect with you there. Um, cool. So neuroscience was your first love, yep. but... You went into the workforce, you worked at MathWorks, you now work at Twitter, which we'll get yep. to in a bit. But while you're working at Twitter full-time, mm -hmm. you are also doing a PhD on the side. Yes. And it seems like, I mean, fill me in more on this. It seems like, well, so what's the timeline? Are you planning on doing it in the same kind of three to four year timeline that you would usually do a PhD at Oxford or a little bit longer? Yeah, a, li a little bit longer, but not much longer. I'm I'm targeting around four and a half years, um, but, but we'll we'll see exactly uh, exactly how things shake out. I'm, but I think I'm on a, a nice path. I actually just completed my transfer of status the other day. Uh, oh, nice! Congratulations. Was it you. stressful? Uh, not too bad. I, I I felt like I was pretty prepared. Nice. So that's. Um... It's a, I think it's an Oxford specific thing, really, this transfer of status. So it's yeah. in the entire, um, I guess, the three or four years that I was doing my PhD, other than the final evaluation at the end, where you've, you have your draft of your dissertation and you get formally examined, this was the only other assessment in the entirety of that entire time. And so it does leave a lot of room for, uh, for, for procrastinating, uh, yeah. in my experience, yeah. um, I kind of, I missed having from my undergrad experience of like all these quizzes, all these tests to keep me in track. Yeah. I was so studious. And yeah. then sometimes at Oxford months go by and you're like, I wonder when the last time I really did some work was, <laughs> um, and it's because you're like, well, I have this one transfer of status evaluation coming up in a few years. Yep. I might as well enjoy the weekend. <laughs> Um, yep. well, congratulations. Yep. That's, that's, it is no small feat to, to be well prepared for that and get through it. Thank you. Um, so 
yeah, so you're planning on doing doing it on roughly the same kind of timeline. Are there synergies with what you're doing at Twitter or is it relatively independent? Tell us about the research that you're doing. Totally. So th there are synergies. My, my research is based around the applications of category theory to machine learning. Uh, category theory is this, uh, depending on who you ask, it's either very hip or very esoteric. It's esoteric <laughs> if you're in the applied world and hip if you're in the pure math world, oh, uh, cool. a branch of mathematics that is, it's useful for characterizing things in terms of how they behave rather than in terms of the direct set of axioms that they satisfy. Um, there's a lot of nice ways that category theory lets you reason about the invariances of transformations and the invariances of objects, what sorts of structure some kind of transformation preserves and what, what sorts of structure things are susceptible to. And it lets you reason about these things formally. And so I, my, the, my thesis essentially is that studying this, studying these properties through the lens of category theory, the, the words that I use are compositionality and functoriality, which is two, are two of the main things that category theory uh, has at its core. Framing machine learning components in this perspective will give us a new new ideas about how to extend algorithms, how to design new algorithms, and how to better understand uh, how algorithms work. All right. I'm going to take a crack at trying to explain back to you what you just said. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and I'm probably going to land flat on my face. So the idea here is that instead of, so if you had some mathematical concepts, instead of trying to describe them by specific axioms, like specific um, proofs, you're describing these mathematical functions or objects uh, in terms of like what they can do in terms of their actual behavior. Um, is that roughly, am I roughly in the right ballpark? Uh, essentially, yes. Well, you, would, you would say that uh, a lot of things in category theory are defined implicitly. You, you say, well, you know, rather, than, rather than say a, a group is something that satisfies this set of constraints or a matrix is a two by two array, you would say that uh, a group is the, the only object that has this kind of transformation to this thing, this sort of transformation to this thing, this sort of transformation to that thing. Like when, when you have this sort of, this is the only thing that satisfies these transformations and behaves this way. And that's, that's, that's a powerful perspective. And it, it gives you uh, the ability to make very strong claims in certain circumstances that are, that are harder to come to from other perspectives. Um, the, uh, there's many different ways. It, it, be, it's, it seems so esoteric, but there's actually many different ways to apply something like category theory uh, to a field like machine learning. There's, there's a burgeoning field of applied category theory where people take these category theory ideas, they try to apply them to economics, to engineering, to quantum physics, to uh, theory, theoretical computer science. Um, some of these are very difficult to, to get purchase on. Some of them, there's already tens of papers that are, are being written that are, are, are describing this. Um, the way my approach is to try to stay as close to the application as possible and try to stay as grounded in particular machine learning algorithms or particular settings that we can describe still theoretically, but from a more concrete setting 
and then try to identify what's a slightly different way to view this concrete thing that then lets us expand a little bit higher. Uh, I've been focusing a lot on clustering algorithms recently uh, and manifold learning algorithms, just saying, uh, like, what is the simplest way that you can describe a clustering algorithm? What are, what's sort of a, that there's a natural hierarchy of different kinds of transformations within category theory. So if we can, ex- if we can explain a certain kind of clustering algorithm as one of these transformations, then there's this natural question of when we make these modifications to these other kinds of transformations, what, what do we get out of that? What kind of new algorithms come out? And then we could actually implement these and run them on data and have um, novel approaches or write wow. proofs about them. Too. <laughs> cool. And so then I guess clustering might be a part of what your work is at Twitter. Yeah. So that that's part of, I, I would say that the, the, the intersection points between what I do in my research and what I do at Twitter comes in at this, this sort of space, like, there's an algorithm that I might use in my research and it's like, ah, actually this works kind of nicely. I wonder how this would work in, in, in Twitter stuff, or maybe I'll come across a challenge at Twitter. I'm like, Oh, that's a sort of interesting case where you have this sparse to dense relationship. I wonder how, I wonder what that might look like on my research side. But in general, I would say that they're very different, uh, largely by design. I, I purposely chose not to, do my PhD in something that was more applied to studies graph research and natural language processing or something that comes up a lot of work. Um, mm-hmm. Because I, I wanted, I, I knew that if I was going to do these at the same time, it would only work if I was able to view my PhD work as a, closer to a hobby than to something that takes mm-hmm. a lot of stress and mental energy. So right. I, I tried to pick what are the major stressors at my job and make sure my PhD has none of them. Okay. <laughs> it has its own set of stressors, but there's no right. there's no duplication. So when I when I switch from my job work to my PhD work, it feels like I'm switching from my my kind of productive job to oh, my my hobby. Where now I'm in, I'm doing uh, some things to unwind, and and so th- so far that's been successful. That is great to hear, and I'm uh, glad to hear it's going well. That is a pro tip in terms of how someone might approach doing a PhD while simultaneously working full-time. Can you provide us with some more context on how that happened, how it came about? Did you have to bring that to your employer? Does Twitter have existing support for people doing PhDs? Um, Do you know other people that have done it? So basically, uh, for me and for our listeners, what is is the experience like of getting started on doing a PhD while you're working full-time? How easy it is to get that going? Um, whether there's specific special things that you need to do um, to be working remotely like that. And presumably, well, actually, there's a number of reasons why your Oxford one is interesting. So um, so not only are you in a different time zone. So I was going to say, typically, people might be expected to be in a lab during uh, work hours, but you're at work during work hours. And on top of that, you're also on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, um, and so maybe yes. that's another kind of thread that we can go down. So I've, I've now posed a number of questions. It's probably yep. going to keep, be hard to keep track of all of them, but <laughs> please uh, try to answer. Totally, <laughs> totally, totally. I'll, I'll, I'll give my best shot. Um, so I guess for the first question of how, how it's happened in the first place is, uh, I mean, I was, I was working at Twitter. I'd, I'd sort of been forming in my mind this idea that I, I wanted to do a PhD. 
Uh, but I really enjoyed my job at Twitter and I felt like I had good momentum in my job and I didn't want to leave and do a PhD. Uh, so I was exploring, my, my original plan was that perhaps I would uh, try to negotiate something with my job where I would move to wherever I got accepted in PhD and work part-time or, or uh, maintain full-time work, but do it, but, but actually live wherever my, my PhD was. Um, but then I, I, when I started looking into different programs and I, I saw programs at Oxford, and Oxford offered some programs part time uh, as on their their website of a few things in the Department of Engineering, um, a few things in the Department of Statistics. And so I, I reached out to a professor and I, I told him that I, I was what I was interested in and, and my my situation, um, and managed to to work out this this arrangement. It took is an enormous uh, organizational lift. Uh, it took almost eight months, I think, of, of discussion, flying to Oxford, working uh, closely with him on a number of projects before I was actually accepted as a student. Um, but it it worked out very well. I'm very happy how it worked out. Um, the situation on the Twitter side was much simpler. I, I, didn't, I didn't really discuss anything until all the details were finalized at Oxford because I figured there's no real point in having both lines of discussion open at the same time. Uh, but once once things were settled, I, I knew the situation. I went to my boss uh, at the time, and he was very supportive. He, he thought it was a, a kind of interesting thing to do. Um, and I'd at the time, I was the – I think I, there was nobody else who was, who was doing this sort of um, circumstance. I, I knew a few other people who were doing master's programs at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that, was, that was not too uncommon. There, there was at least – two or three other people who I worked with regularly who were doing master's programs at the same time, which I think was part of why nobody really, the fact that I was doing a PhD and they were doing master's didn't seem to be something that, you know, meant I needed to be put in a different category. Um, The, although things have actually changed since then, there have been, uh, there are a few people now uh, who are at Twitter who have joint appointments at universities. And there are, there are some employees who are, are, both like a Twitter employee and a, a student at a university uh, under the, with their, their boss at Twitter and their advisor and their, their PhD is the same person. And they, of course, their PhD work is extremely tied to their, their Twitter work. So it's a, a different sort of circumstance, but uh, that wasn't an option when I <laughs> first went down the path of looking uh, for, for where I ended up. Um, but so the, let me make sure I'm getting this right. So the, the person, so, their supervisor also works at Twitter. Yes. And yeah. is a, a lecturer or yeah. a, a professor at a university. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know how many people have this. I know for, I know for sure Michael Bronstein, uh, who's a, a professor at Imperial College. Uh, he's mm-hmm. also a head of graph learning research at Twitter. Uh, and so there's a, a few people in his group who are also his PhD students. Um, and cool. to, my, to my knowledge, they were Twitter engineers first and then applied to imperial college and um, nice yeah and that's also uh for people who aren't away imperial college is an outstanding british university in london which mind-bogglingly outside of england people have almost never heard of and it's great research in machine learning (laughs) great research they're often the top ranked research university in the uk above uh more internationally recognized places like oxford and cambridge it's a really interesting situation yeah Um, 
someone needs to work on their branding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in general, uh, people in the, the U.S. have relatively limited visibility into universities outside of the U.S. I mean, there's a number. Yeah, of I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah, for, I don't know what it is about. Maybe it's, yeah, I don't know. Somehow, like, I, I think Oxford and Cambridge are kind of names people know. Maybe they just yeah. show up in movies and TV shows more yeah. often. Then, like, the, yeah, there's a there's a lot. I mean, the the word Oxford is very common. There's the Oxford Dictionary. There's right. sort of the, they, there's a bit of a and in Cambridge as well. We have Cambridge, Massachusetts, <laughs> right? <laughs> which uh, which it, it's interesting. I think it's not a coincidence that Cambridge, Massachusetts is called Cambridge, Massachusetts because so I'm stretching a little bit here. But Harvard University, which is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, they use the same degree name conventions as Cambridge, which was a little bit unusual at the time. So that at that time, it was more common to use the Oxford Convention. So we've been talking about the degree that you're pursuing all this time as a PhD, but technically it's a DPhil, yep. which is, it's like the same Latin words, but the other way around. So doctorum philosophy. Uh, I'm probably butchering that, but same, like it's the same words as PhD, uh, which is like philosophium doctorate or something. I don't know. Yep. Um, so they're the same Latin words, but the other way around. And Cambridge was super unusual to call that degree a PhD at the time. And it was Harvard University that somehow seeded those degree names becoming common around the world um anyway so now i'm feeling like it's not a coincidence that the city that harvard is in is cool. yeah I, I i can't <laughs> say i know it would not surprise me at all yeah all right well somebody is hopefully um researching this as as they listen to this and you can send me a linkedin message or something and let me know how wrong i was yeah. um, or hopefully i was right on the money if i was right on the money then make it a public linkedin post and tag me <laughs> and if, it was, if I was wrong, make it a private message. Um, no, I'm kidding. Oh. Either way, you can make it a public post. Um, I am shameless. Um, cool. So you told us a bit about your research um, at Oxford, and we have a sense of what it's like to study while you're working. It sounds like you're enjoying it, and I guess you don't have any reservations about it. You would probably recommend it. Um, it sounds like um, the logistics of getting it approved on the university side might not always be the easiest thing in the world. Yep. but um, but it's possible. Really exciting. Totally. Um, all right. So then we're finally making our way to that third and final thread uh, that is common between us, which is teaching at the New York City Data Science Academy. Yep. So I only ever taught there on Saturdays. I had a I had a deep learning curriculum that I taught there for years, and it formed the basis of my book, Deep Learning Illustrated. Um, but, uh, I actually, I didn't look up, I don't know how I noticed, I think I might've just seen on your LinkedIn that you were, yeah. and you're, uh, you were an instructor there. So I don't know yeah. what you taught or anything else about it. Feel free to fill me in. Totally. Yeah. So, so I didn't have a, uh, full-time position as an instructor there. I, I, uh, gave several talks. I think I gave talks to three separate cohorts, uh, over the course of about a year and a half. Um, and my, my talks were all, it was all during the time that I was working at true motion, uh, which is the company that I worked at before Twitter. And my, my talks were all very based around, um, something that I, something that I've, I like to talk about a lot. Then I, I still talk about now when I give public talks, which is label engineering, uh, or mm. like just the, the process of, 
Um, given that you're in a situation where you don't have access to high quality labels, how do you reconcile that? L- high quality labels to train a machine learning model with. Um, that was a very common problem at TrueMotion. It's less of a problem at Twitter or le- less of a central problem. It's still, still very important, but uh, at TrueMotion, it was the kind of do or die problem. Yeah, tell us about true motion. And uh, I guess something that is probably obvious to most listeners is a label is just if you have a bunch of pictures and some of them are of cats and some of them are of dogs that you actually have the ones that are cats labeled as cats and the ones that are dogs labeled as dogs. And so that way you can train um, a supervised learning algorithm, we call them. Um, And uh, so supervised learning often allows us to do a lot more. When we have those labels, there's a lot more kind of inference and prediction that becomes possible relative to if we just have a data set of a bunch of pet, pet photos, um, which there's still a fair bit you can do. Um, but yeah, labeling data is uh, a key to um, building great machine learning models in a lot of cases, certainly a lot of real world use cases. Anyway, tell us about TrueMotion and why you didn't have labeled data as well as Maybe some tips as to give us a little taste of what you would lecture about. Totally, totally, absolutely. Uh, so TrueMotion um, is a, a company in Boston that I, I worked at for about two years. Um, they develop technology for insurance companies, uh, particularly uh, car insurance. The um, technology integrates into insurance company apps uh, with, as an SDK and is utilized for usage-based insurance pricing. So basically to determine uh, how much somebody should be charged for their car insurance based on how they drive. Uh, so a lot of the problems that we solved was wow. given this stream of GPS and motion sensor data, do inference on how good of a driver somebody is, how likely they are to get into an accident, how likely they are to cause various kinds of wear and tear in their car. and there's a lot of sub-machine learning problems that go in on here. Uh, most of them were caused by the fact that uh, these, the, the way that the software ran was, was not something where we could ask the user, before you drive, load the app, open it up, place it on the mount. Like with this, everything needed to be completely in the background. Like, I mean, users, no, no, nobody's getting tricked. Everyone knows they're signing up for a usage-based insurance program and downloading this right. app on their phone. Uh, but it needs to be non-obtrusive and it, and it needs to be accurate without requiring any input from the user. I love the idea of um, of how if you were to ask them for feedback, it could be the app asking them for feedback that leads to accidents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very, uh, very real, actually. That That is that is something that <laughs> that we've we've had to discuss when we were, when we were there. The uh, degree to which we would involve the users in the app, uh, especially during driving time. Can you prompt them for labels or things like that. Right. Um, Let us know if you're encountering horrifically icy conditions. Yeah. <laughs> Please pull the app out of your pocket at that time. Yeah. Send a notification. Are you looking at your <laughs> phone right now? Yes. No. <laughs> but that, that, so, so that was the, the kind of problem was like identify when someone is texting and driving based on the motion sensors in the phone or identify when they're taking a turn too hard or identify when they're driving, which is actually the hardest of all the problems, uh, driver identification. Identify when they're driving, and if there's multiple people who own a car, uh, identify who's driving. Um, distinguishing between a car and a bus and a train and a bicycle is also difficult. Uh, so there's a mode of transit problem. 
And for a lot of these, the labeled data was extremely sparse or non-existent. And so there's a lot of creativity that goes into the proper derivation of these labels or or how we can utilize a small amount of uh, labeled data to uh, make much larger inferences or to transform somewhat labeled data into more labeled data. Nice. So is there... Are there any specific uh, practices or pieces of technology that you recommend for for any of those kinds of situations, like taking a small set of labeled data and being able to uh, infer what the labels would be on a bigger data set? Totally. So, I mean, in terms of technology, one one piece of technology that I think is great is Snorkel, uh, which mm-hmm. it's out of a lab of in Stanford um, yep. that they they do a lot of this label augmentation work, um, and we we utilized. Applause, uh, which was, uh, I think it's it's very similar to Amazon's Mechanical Turk, uh, although a little bit more interactive. Um, as our our company that we uh, contracted with to have hire people to use the app and then provide labels on on what they did. So, a lot of the time, the the bottom line with uh, generating label data is, is uh, or sort of utilizing this label engineering is a thought process of proxy labels. There's, it's often the case that there's a hierarchy of information that you have. Sometimes users will provide permissions only in certain circumstances. Those permissions will give you some amount of information um, or their battery will be high enough that you can tap into the GPS. Uh, so if, if you're trying to build an algorithm that only operates on motion sensor data, then you could utilize your more accurate algorithm that incorporates GPS data and incorporates um, like uh, other kinds of user signals as the labels for your your algorithm that needs to operate under uh, more stringent circumstances. And then the that higher level algorithm might be trained on some some even higher resolution type of label that involves manual user feedback. Uh, often, what will happen is we, we would we have these little accelerometers that we would strap to cars. And we'd, uh, we'd drive around and do all sorts of crazy things. Uh, and then we'd also fill the car with uh, hundreds of cell phones <laughs> that could be put in every possible position. And we would uh, train these phones on, train kind of full resolution, maximum battery, all the sensors kinds of algorithms on the these accelerometers. Then we'd train low battery versions of all these algorithms on the high battery versions of the model that was trained on much more data. And then we'd have the, then we'd have something that was actually trained in a very large, very diverse data set, all kind of starting with just a very small amount of very high resolution data. So sort of an outward expanding uh, process of, of going from high resolution to low resolution signals. Nice. That is super clear. That is a great tip. And so, uh, since True Motion, you now find yourself at Twitter. We've talked about that yep. a little bit, obviously. Um, and we've talked about specifically how your PhD research is not related to what you yep. do at Twitter. So first off, uh, congratulations. Since the last time you were on the show, your title has changed from Senior Machine Learning Engineer to Staff Machine Learning Engineer. And so I understand that's a promotion, not a demotion. Yep. Um, right. So tell us. Um, what this staff title means. We see these staff titles at um, many of the big tech companies have yep. these kinds of staff scientist or staff engineer roles. What exactly does it entail? Totally. Uh, so staff is the fourth 
level up the ladder, not including the apprentice or intern roles. Usually there's a level, a sweet one, as we call it at Twitter, uh, then a sweet two level, then a senior level, then the staff level above that. Sweet, I guess, is software. Software engineer, yeah. Or, or MLE is oh, the other yeah. machine engineer. SWE, but yes. saying it, W is the most annoying letter to abbreviate with because it's almost always more syllables than whatever you're abbreviating. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, sweet. Uh, I like that. Yeah, or MLE, which I guess is probably more accurate because it's a machine learning engineer. I think um, it's Mui. 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 I haven't <laughs> heard that one. Don't use that one at all. Yeah, so, so um, usually uh, a staff engineer is a role that um, corresponds to having cross-org responsibility, um, having sort of a role in leading a, a relatively large team or driving multiple initiatives across organizations. Usually one of the hallmarks of uh, staff engineers that they have input and influence outside of the projects that they're, they're working on. Um, they're often called in to review proposals or to uh, have input into larger scale technical decisions that affect uh, multiple organizations or the, the whole company. And so this is th this is something that I've uh, I, I think is a very good thing to have in a company to have a, a staff level on the ladder and give engineers a voice at these uh, higher level organizational decisions. Uh, in a lot of companies, these sorts of roles where um, I mean, some staff engineers barely code at all. I, I certainly code much less than I did as a senior engineer, um, and, and some do almost no coding. Uh, but have a, a lot of influence in terms of technical direction of the company, in terms of uh, setting the roadmap for work streams that require a lot of um, connecting work, connecting upstream data pipeline work with downstream uh, work on models that will consume those and the uh, parts of the front end that then consumes the predictions of a model. Uh, a lot of this requires organizational alignment. So at, at some other companies that don't have this level of technical ladder, uh, this would normally be folded into the role of managers. Uh, have just a, a larger staff of managers who may be hired from outside of an engineering background uh, playing a role in the, the these decisions. At a company like Twitter, um, the role of manager is... is uh, separated a little bit from these more explicit technical decisions, which are delegated to uh, a higher level engineers. Um, although there's always a, it depends on exactly the organization and exactly the project, but that's largely the way that it breaks down. Nice. That is hugely informative. I was not aware of most of that. Um, in fact, I had an inkling that it was almost the opposite of, so I, I had this idea that a staff machine learning engineer or a staff uh, software engineer might almost be more academic, that you kind of had more time to be uh, doing research, um, but actually you're playing a bigger role than ever in the organization. Yes, so that's that, absolutely the case. I mean, the, the, I, I, I would say it's, a lot of people say that the workhorses of an organization are the, the senior engineers and the sweet twos uh, who, who kind of churn out most the vast majority of code is probably written by senior engineers and sweet twos uh, when you kind of look at what, what actually gets done. I think research is a little bit of a tougher question because there's always research directions, but certainly 
looking at who's published the most papers at Twitter, I, I would be surprised if the largest is the, by far like, disproportionate to the percentage of employees uh, would be senior engineers. Right, right, right. Cool. All right. Now I know. Um, I would have never have talked about my assumptions out loud, but uh, <laughs> it's nice to now be able to speak knowledge- knowledgeably about it in the future. So now tell us perhaps um, some specific projects that you're working on at Twitter. Um, you know, how, how does being a staff machine learning engineer provide you with this kind of um, scope over more of the organization and be able yeah. to do more? Uh, yeah, fill us in. Totally. So I previously, when I, when I last was on the podcast, uh, I was still a part of Cortex, which was a, a part of Twitter that's responsible for their core machine learning pipelines and core machine learning models. And I, I was on Cortex for about three years. I, I, I branched out, which is encouraged at Twitter, moving from calling branching out, moving from one part of the company to another uh, at almost exactly the same time that I was promoted from senior to staff. Um, because an opportunity opened in the revenue science organization, which is within uh, the ads part of Twitter, uh, essentially, um, to lead the uh, website direct response advertising uh, product, which we're we're building out and improving now. Um, so these this is basically the space of performance ads. There's advertisers who uh, will pay to have their ads shown on Twitter. And they'll pay an amount that is directly related to the value they expect to get out of showing these ads. So these aren't the kinds of ads where you just show a billboard and say like, hey, you know, this is an announcement, this thing exists, or something that's a more long-term potential, put this in front of people and, uh, you know, for your consideration at some point in the future. These are ads that are... Um, high intense ads. The, the goal is to show this to somebody, have them click on it and make a purchase um, or have them click on it and visit the website. Um, and the there, there's a very, uh, very technical machine learning breakdown on what happens here in terms of we have the large set of such ads that we might show. Uh, our goal is to display them on the Twitter app in certain locations on the app. And we uh, choose to display them in places based on uh, the expected value of showing it, of how how much money the advertiser has bidded on a particular event, like a click or a purchase or a download, if, we're, if it's an app that we're advertising. Um, and then our model's estimates of how likely this event is to occur. And so this, is, this all sort of goes into an auction, which has its own set of interesting engineering and mathematics and the crazy dynamics that happens. Uh, and then the the actual ads are displayed, and the the quality of these estimations of how likely somebody is to to do these sorts of things with with an ad, uh, as well as a, a whole host of other models uh, that check like whether or not an ad is trying to game the system in a bad way, or whether it was produce a poor user experience, um, or if it will be redundant with other ads that we're showing to users. Uh, are all part of this uh, infrastructure and system. And my role is uh, leading the development of this uh, a subset of these kinds of ads, which are, are ads for uh, advertisers who are particularly trying to drive users to their websites to make purchases. Nice. 
what's the, I mean, other than driving people to websites to make purchases, how, how else would you get people to, to buy something right away? Well, another very large area is mobile apps, uh, getting people to oh, download yeah, mobile apps and then make purchases <laughs> of mobile apps. Many people, that's a, that's a major. <laughs> when people see yeah. the ad, they, autom- they immediately get up out of their seat and go to their local grocery yeah. store. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Another, another is uh, video views, which is, it's, it's somewhere, it's really somewhere in between what you'd call performance ads and reach ads. Um, it, it's performance ad because we're not just showing it to someone and saying that's enough. The person needs to actually click on the video and watch it. And so there's a, there's a modeling component to you model users behavior, you model how likely someone is to actually click on this and watch this video after we show it to you. So it's, it, it's sort of, it, it, the revenue science organization is also responsible for, those kinds of, and those are very important too. Nice. So what kinds of uh, software tools would people in the revenue science organization use every day? So presumably everyone's using MATLAB all the time. (laughs) Number one, most used tool. (laughs) No, (laughs) Uh, I I don't think that Twitter has any relationship with MathWorks that I'm aware of. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we, a lot of our backend is JVM based. Twitter is, uh, very Scala focused. I mean, it's one of the largest companies that uh, has Scala at its core. Um, mm. Although a lot of the ad tech uh, is in Java, uh, partially for legacy reasons, partially because a lot of the people within the ads organization are more familiar with it. Uh, but it, the two are very interoperable, and there's many many places where they yeah. they kind of smoothly blends from one to the other. JVM is Java Virtual Machine. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. And Scala runs in the JVM, which is why those Java and Scala play so nicely together. And, um, and for that reason, we use TensorFlow, which also has a really nice uh, integration with the JVM. So that TensorFlow, which is you know mainly Python-based, is our uh, primary uh, system that we utilize for deploying models. Um, Twitter has some in-house systems that are built in Java uh, that are from a very, very long time ago before TensorFlow existed. Uh, that also are, are running um, on in certain circumstances, but the TensorFlow is our primary modeling tool. Yeah, it's interesting how much people associate TensorFlow, the TensorFlow library, with the Python uh, software language, when in fact it was created in C plus plus, imported over to Python. Um, it does have its primary interfaces. Uh, I think the the most supported interfaces for TensorFlow today are C and Python. Um, but tons of other software languages like Scala are supported uh, in an official capacity. Um, yep. And so it makes, so TensorFlow is a really nice language for portability um, between languages, between devices. Um, the TensorFlow graphs can be, yeah, you can move them between languages, you can move them between yep. a, a large number of servers to an embedded device on a car or a mobile phone, um, even ex- execute in someone's browser. It is a certainly a versatile language. I think it'll be it'll be entrenched in our devices for decades to come. I I, I think that's probably right. I, I, TensorFlow really is a great piece of technology. It, it had a bit of a bumpy start in terms of usability, and it, it still is has a very steep learning curve. But it, its uh, interoperability is very high. It's a pretty well supported, <clears throat> and I, I like it as a tool. Really, the the most model training on TensorFlow at Twitter happens in Python. It's it's part of a larger Python-based data science ecosystem, yeah, but model execution happens within a, a Java environment. 
And so there's, um, there's like optimization of Twitter specific TensorFlow operations that's written in C++. There's the deployment engines, which are written in Java, and then all of the actual model training uh, is, is in uh, Python. That all makes perfect sense, and it's a perfect use case for that kind of interoperability. Um, it definitely shows um, how that can be useful. So um, if somebody was looking to work at Twitter, what kinds of things do you look for in the people that you hire? It really is very role dependent, uh, and depending on the level that someone's coming in at. Uh, when someone's at, at kind of earlier in their career, um, it, what exactly they've worked on in the past and their their the exact technology that they're familiar with is, is uh, a lot less important than their you know whether or not they're a culture fits, uh, whether or not they have uh, core fundamentals, and are clearly able to to be competent with the, the tools that they do know um, and this sort of less of a expectation that somebody will be able to come in and, and make a, a huge impact on, on our legacy systems immediately. Uh, but for someone who's at a, at a higher level, having a, um, a holistic understanding of uh, just like the kinds of problems that appear in production software systems and especially if it's a machine learning role, which is really the only kinds of roles that I've ever interviewed someone for, uh, it, having a, an understanding of the, the sort of long list of production machine learning problems that always occur uh, is, is really, really critical. Um, and th this is in addition to the, the, uh, the general technical knowledge that is, is usually used as a bar at most uh, large tech companies, and then of course culture fit and just having a, a good attitude. We have a number of, I think we we do a disproportionately large number of interviews that are based around um, someone's like, ability to have like self reflection and uh, fit with with our culture. Oh, nice. Um, and so when you talk about a long list of common machine learning problems, this would be things like feature drift, um, the kinds of problems that if you had only studied machine learning academically, or even if you were doing it hands-on through courses provided by Udacity or uh, you know, super data science, um, you might not know how in production there's these specific kinds of problems that you're always running into. Yeah, yes, that's the case. I mean, and that's, that's why I say this is something like if someone's coming out of university, we don't expect right, them right, to right, have right. all the experience if someone is you know, worked at a, worked in machine learning jobs in the past, but there's, um, when we, when we hire someone at a higher level, we, we kind of look for the traits that will allow them to make an impact and having, a, it, it, in order to make an impact, it's important that you have thought deeply about the, the kinds of problems that are likely to occur in reality. So yeah, I mean, like feature drift is another huge part is organizational alignment. Like it's it's very common that you consume features or produce features or have models running in environments where people leave, organization shifts, a uh, code, you know, there's you have bit rot when someone, uh, some one part of a, a library gets deprecated. There's an enormous number of these sort of software issues that have huge impact on uh, production machine learning systems, and um, most of our time is spent 
designing things in a way that minimizes the impact of these issues and then also directly mitigating them. Yeah, I think probably to somebody who is thinking about getting started in data science or machine learning, um, you probably expect that when you're working in the field, you spend all of your time thinking about particular modeling approaches and maybe new data sources, interesting ways that data you do or could have access to could be used in a model. And in fact, that is, those are like, it's a minority of the time. It's a great part of the time. Um, it's, some of the, it's some of the most enjoyable, but the reality is that especially the closer you are to the production end of the spectrum, the more time is consumed with the kinds of issues that you're describing, um, which are- Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, so that's definitely the case. And what I've found is that it varies a lot depending on exactly where in the organization that you sit. Uh, and during my time at Cortex, I, I got to experience several different roles within Cortex, uh, including a, a stint on Cortex's applied research organization, part of their platform, uh, machine learning platform tools. And so I, I sort of had a, a Right now, I'm what would be called a product engineer. I'm, I'm sort of directly working on a product that ships things to users. And my impact, any launch that I have, I can launch it an A-B experiment where I directly see like how much revenue that Im Im increases. Whereas uh, when I was on Cortex in a research capacity, there was, it was a lot more difficult to identify exactly what my, the things that I'm doing affect Revenue, and when I was on a platform capacity, even even harder because the systems that I would build would then plug into some other team systems. And I mean, who knows what of those teams' wins that they got were actually due to the things that I did to make right. their systems easier to use. Um, but the the bottom line, I, I, the point I was, I was kind of made at that tangent is that uh, the people working on each of these different parts think about very different things. On on a product part, I think a lot about how the things that I'm working on corresponds to the general product vision and the the things in the product timeline that are coming up later, whether or not these upstream data sets that my models need to consume uh, are able to meet all of the proper SLAs and if we need to, to change our strategy in order to account for that. Um, but when I was on Cortex Applied Research, uh, the the challenges were, were very different. There was a lot more time spent doing literature reviews, time spent implementing some like really gnarly TensorFlow code to do some crazy sampling strategies. Still a lot of uh, issues, still a lot of these kinds of um, organizational issues. And in, in a lot of ways, it was more frustrating because sometimes I had less visibility into why these issues were occurring. It was just some, we built something, we thought it worked really well. And then it was like, oh, it can't go into production. Sorry, there's some product thing that some series of reasons why this isn't the best thing to do right now that we didn't have visibility right. into. Um, so I guess it's a trade-off. When you spend more of your time doing these more fun parts, you have less control over how much impact you're actually able to drive in the business. You, you will be able to spend more time using cool technology, and you'll be able to spend more time thinking about like these kind of cool ideas. But when the time comes to actually ship software that makes a real difference, you you could very well get, uh, you know, have been working on something that just was not aligned with the core company priorities or, or less aligned than you thought it was. But if you spend all your time thinking about the corporate company priorities and how to align your work with that, 
you're very unlikely to be working on the coolest technologies <laughs> and the coolest things that are, are uh, you know, the, the coolest kinds of machine learning challenges. I think there's a fundamental dichotomy here. And it really just depends on what someone, which path someone wants to go down. That dichotomy is a great insight. I hadn't thought about it that way before, and you articulated it perfectly. Um, I kind of have, well, I, I'm going to start, my questions are going to start like getting us toward uh, wrapping up, um, but in a kind of a, a vein related to um, your position at Twitter, you know, one of the world's biggest tech companies and your experience as a staff machine learning engineer there, you have um, a lot of insight into where technology uh, applications are going. And then through your PhD, you also are developing a lot of insight into what kinds of research is becoming more and more important. Um, you know, your particular research uh, straddles pure and applied. And so what do you think, what kinds of machine learning approaches or ideas do you think are going to be um, important or prevalent in the coming years that yeah. listeners could maybe get in front of? So one thing that I, I think I've, I've seen a lot of recently that's, that's been a, a growing trend, um, both within machine learning and without machine learning, is, is no-code tools and tools that make training machine learning models easier. Um, I, I recently tried using BigQuery. BigQuery is uh, like a SQL engine um, that mm -hmm. Google provides. Google, yeah. yeah, it's part of Google Cloud Platform. It's extremely scalable. It's great. We, we uh, Twitter signed a contract with them, and now we get to use BigQuery. It's awesome. Uh, but one, one of the things... use it. Great, yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the things that blew me away about BigQuery was how easy it made it to train machine learning models within BigQuery is very the bqml pipeline uh the kind of tiny changes to the way you write a sql query and then suddenly you have machine learning models that are, are using top of the line technology that are extremely easy to export and then schedule the jobs to run offline like it's mm. uh it really amazed me how um how it was possible to to do so much with so little configuration and i i think that what that tells me is that this sort of low effort or, or low code or no code approaches to building new models that then go into all of these different places, that seems to me to be the future. I, I think we'll always have big, a company like Twitter is, is going to need to have a, a very sophisticated infrastructure of feature engineering and monitoring and deployment. And then some models are going to be extremely well optimized. Um, and so, so it's not like all oh, everyone's jobs are going to be lost to no code tools, but I think there's a lot of jobs that are going to appear, uh, where people spend most of their time thinking about business problems and utilize low code or no code machine learning tools as part of their job, similar to how people use Excel. Now, I, I think that this, this kind of no code modeling is going to find its way into a lot more people's toolboxes. Nice. So as a bottom line, uh, if you're looking to become better at data science, forget how to code. <laughs> uh, and focus on business applications. Uh, I, I, I don't know if that comment was really I I, driven no, towards I, people who are... I, I'm, I'm just making a joke. Uh, no, that, that makes perfect sense. I, um, I, I understand exactly what you're saying, and you're absolutely right. I, 
I think that there's a lot of companies that have been working for years on building these kinds of no-code or local tools that make life easier. And um, it, it means that we can have more people working on data-related problems, which is great. Yeah. And it means that some people um, will be able to spend less time fiddling about with some parts of their, uh, of their machine learning process. So maybe like with BigQuery, make, allowing data acquisition to be easier um, and then allowing you to have more time for either um, learning about some crazy new application like quantum yeah. machine learning and spending some of your time on that uh, yeah. instead of worrying about data ingestion um, yep. or um, freeing you up to spend more time with um, business problems or change management or product yep. or really having your um, your data-related applications make a big impact in the world. And I, I think, I mean, one, one other data point here, just, to, just specifically from Twitter, is, is when, you, when I look at the set of people who work entirely on projects that are machine learning projects. This is a, the core tool here is like the, the model, the prediction models for ad ranking, or the prediction models for timeline ranking, or the prediction models for sending notifications. And I look at the people whose, whose main job it is, is to, to make these models run, make them run better. Um, a very small percentage of them actually train models. Most of these people are, are software engineers, essentially, who are familiar with, with the challenges related to machine learning. Those that may have, pre in their previous job, trained models, and may have branched in from a team where they trained models. Uh, I mean, they, they don't lack the, the skill set of training models. It's just that so much of the work that comes into the deployment and maintenance and operation of machine learning models in a production system is software engineering work, especially at a company like Twitter, where in the kind of size of our data, the speed with which our models need to respond to changes in the data distribution requires enormous software lifts. So, I mean, I, I almost feel like for someone who wants to work at a company like Twitter, the software engineering part is, is much more, much more of it is, is that. That was not the case at all at TrueMotion, which, which is interesting. I, I think at, at TrueMotion, the, the way that the balance was, was the really hard problems were the machine learning problems. Like the, the actual deployments of our software was was not that challenging. The the number of people who were really working on developing machine learning models was like twice the number of people who were working on any part of the, the actual maintenance of the model. Most of the software engineers were working on the app development and the backend uh, parts that weren't particularly tied to the machine learning models. Like that, that was just a dichotomy of, of the, the two the two companies and the way that work flows. But but I think at large companies like Twitter and then companies that are way larger like Facebook or Google, uh, my guess is that the, this sort of software engineer adjacent to machine learning models is a much larger percentage of the jobs and often a, a higher amount of, of the overall impact uh, than someone who's training models directly. Yeah, beautifully said again. And um, another great dichotomy contrasting promotion and Twitter. And um, yeah, it shows there's a huge number of uh, skill sets that are valuable in a really broad range of companies. And, and these kinds of things like, um, yeah, these, these engineering considerations, you know, making sure that the data structures are performant and memory efficient, 
um, is again, maybe the kind of thing that if you're getting started in data science or probably even in machine learning, things like algorithms and data structures probably aren't the thing that you're thinking is going to be hugely important in your job, but in lots of roles like you're describing, um, it can end up being one of the most important aspects. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So I've learned a lot in this episode. I have no doubt that our audience did too. Um, one last thing that I'd like to learn from you is a book recommendation that you have. Totally. Uh, I, I would have to recommend Coding the Matrix by Philip Klein, uh, uh, one of my professors at Brown. It's a great book. Uh, basically an intro to linear algebra from a, a computational perspective. I hadn't, I, I've, I've thought about this book a lot recently because I, I don't think I fully appreciated it when I when I took the class. It was my my only linear algebra class in college. I mean, most people take one linear algebra class, uh, and it was just a um, it went through linear algebra from a computer science perspective. It was offered by the computer science department rather than the math department, and we spent a lot of time discussing algorithms that you don't talk about in normal linear algebra class. We talked about gradient descents. We talked about Newton's method. And we spent a lot of time talking about the singular value decomposition, which I think might be the single coolest algorithm that, that exists. <laughs> it's so critical for so many different applications, um, but is not often not talked about in linear algebra classes. I would have talked to some of my friends who took linear algebra classes in the math department or at other universities. They'd never heard of singular value decomposition. They learned about it first in their machine learning course uh, or, or at some other point in, in their career. Uh, and I, I really appreciated that. I, I got a little bit of a head start on that. When I, my, when I think of linear algebra and I think of sort of the core ways that linear algebra works, I think about it from this computational perspective. I think that was a good uh, vantage point. So for someone who's taken linear algebra and is looking to brush up or has never taken linear algebra before and is interested to learn from a computer science perspective, I, I'd highly recommend the book, Coding the Matrix. Coding the Matrix. I'm looking forward to reading that. So you probably don't know this, but I uh, recently rolled out in partnership with Super Data Science, a course called Machine Learning Foundations, and it covers linear algebra, calculus, probability, statistics, algorithms, and data structures awesome. from the perspective of somebody that would like to be applying data science or machine learning techniques. And um, uh, right now, uh, all of the linear algebra content is available um, in say Udemy or, um, and, and so, uh, that those specific kinds of topics like singular value decomposition, um, is something that is a big part, um, of the intro to linear algebra cl uh, class. Um, I suspect, however, that your book recommendation digs in a lot more deeply, uh, into the math than I had time for in this kind of survey of all of these subjects. Um, so that is something that I think will be great for me. Um, and it's great to hear when people reinforce what I think are the important yep. things that people need to know in terms of these other, yeah. these foundational subjects that underlie machine learning. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's good. I think having a, I think, I think that that kind of mathematical, uh, foundation for machine learning, especially for someone who's pivoting, uh, from another career path, it, it can feel very intimidating to pick all of those things up. And it, it's true that there's really just a, a relatively small subset of things that you that are really important to understand within these fields. Um, I think it's, it's great to have uh, options to, to learn those sorts of things in a, a accessible way. Cool. Well, um, thank you so much for being on the program. 
I, yeah, really loved it. And I'm sure a lot of audience members did too. So how should people follow you? Do you have a Twitter account? I do have a Twitter account. (laughs) Um, Great. So uh, we'll provide your Twitter account um, for people to follow you and hear the latest on your insights. Uh, That'll be in the show notes. And um, yeah, any other ways that people should stay in touch? Um, my, my, I think my Twitter account is probably the best bet. That's the, what I, certainly what I pay the most attention to. I am on LinkedIn. People can feel free to reach out to me there. But I mean, I, I think I'm much more likely to say interesting things on Twitter than on LinkedIn. <laughs> Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. Um, when people use Twitter in the workplace, does it ever... Like, is there any kind of stigma around that feeling like you're you're not really working? Like, do you know, do you get do you get my question? Like, if, if yeah, if you see someone on Twitter and you're like, I really needed them to be working on this particular task, <laughs> are they working or not when they're on Twitter? <laughs> well, I mean, first, just in general, I, I most of the people I work with are in San Francisco anyway, so I, not spending much time looking over people's shoulder. Right. Um, but the, uh, and even in New York, I mean, it's people, people work on different ways. I, I know I knew one person uh, who had two monitors and on one monitor, he'd always have either a TV show or a, a video from like, it was a live video game, live streamers, like always on one screen, no matter what. There's other screen, you have code, docs, everything. Uh, that, was just how, that was just how he worked. That's how he was most pro- uh, productive. Um, but to, Using Twitter is def- is always sort of feels like a, a, it's it's fun, but I do feel like it's productive because there's uh, a lot of whenever I have experiences on Twitter, I'm like oh, I really feel like that piece should be better. We should that was a bad recommendation. I wonder why that got recommended to me. Oh, that's funny. I thought you were going to say yeah. because even for me, Twitter can be very useful because uh, in, yeah. in terms of work, because almost everyone I follow is someone in data science or machine learning, yeah. and so I get to learn new trends um and it is kind of an educational process for me too but yeah of course from your perspective it's also a product uh yeah yeah i mean i I also almost entirely follow machine learning and category theory and like ad tech people so (laughs) my feed is a giant stream of math uh which is exactly how i like it but um you know there's there's this other part of it too nice All right. Well, thank you once again. And we're looking forward to having you on the show again at some point in the future. Absolutely. I had a great time. Many thanks to Dan for his articulate communication and comprehensive illustrative examples of any topics he brought up. I hope you enjoyed learning as much as I did about the logistics of getting into and succeeding at a PhD while working full time, how to translate almost pure mathematical subjects like category theory into real world, cutting edge machine learning innovations, guidance and tools for labeling huge data sets with semi-supervised approaches, the influential position of staff engineers at big tech companies like Twitter, the software languages and libraries used for machine learning at Twitter, how revenue science can boost ad performance, and the efficiencies afforded by low effort or no code tools. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URL for Dan's Twitter profile at superdatascience.com 451. 
That's superdatascience.com slash 451. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube. I also encourage you to tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter, where my Twitter handle is at John Crone Learns, to let me know your thoughts on this episode. I'd love to respond to your comments or questions in public and get a conversation going. All right, it's been a great episode. I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.